Welcome back, Two Hats family, to the Two Hats podcast. I'm your host, Chris, the Tactical Probation Officer, and this is my wonderful co-host. It's Brittany, your favorite PO. All right, we have uh, we have a great episode for you guys today. We uh, interviewed Shane. He is a retired Alaska Probation and Parole Officer. So as you guys know, we try to bring you guys interviews with officers from all over the country so that you guys can hear how things are done in different parts of the states. And uh, stay tuned. Enjoy episode number 17. I have so many questions. I have so many questions. And uh, so we'll just go ahead and get started. Now, thinking back to your time as a probation officer in Alaska, um, we have a couple standard questions that we ask everyone. So the first question is, your depart- the department itself, on a scale, on the two hat scale, one to ten, with one being a social worker, and ten being a law enforcement officer, a cop, deputy sheriff, how would you rate your department on a two hat scale? Uh, with uh, Alaska Probation Parole, was quite different than most departments that I've uh, I've spoken to. Um, in Alaska, you're a regular um, sworn post certified law enforcement officer, so you go through the academy and you do everything. So I would say because of the mix that you do in the nature of the job, um, it's probably between an eight and a nine because you do do a lot of law enforcement. You do a lot of patrolling, you do, you know, warrant arrests, um, you do all kinds of stuff. You wear, as you say, two hats. Wow. You said patrolling. Wow. We have definitely have to get into that because, uh, I got some good questions for that. Um, so you said the department's about an eight or a nine. So you personally on the, on, the, on the scale, are you eight or nine or you or do you move around yourself on the scale? As far as uh, in in my career? Well, as a when you were a P when you were a PO in Alaska, how did you rate yourself on the scale? I think I was more of a mix. I don't think I was leaning one way or another. I think I was pretty close to probably a six or a seven um, just because of the nature of the job. Um, and my position was a specialized position to begin with. So it was, I think I did a lot more of the community involvement and getting out there and dealing with victims and, and that than a lot of the other units did. So what made you want to get into this profession to begin with? <laughs> Oh man, you're going to make me tell my secrets. Um, my dad's best friend when I was a kid was a game warden. His name was Russ Marshington. He was the longest lived game warden in the state of Montana. He put 42 years in before he retired. Um, he talked me into it. And of course, then I went to, I was in Bozeman. I, uh, applied to go to the law enforcement Academy. And I was, I, Quite honestly, I was kind of a hellraiser as a kid, so everybody was surprised that I was on the other side of the glass, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I asked the I asked the local deputy um, of the little town that I went to high school in. There's two deputies there. Uh, that's how little it is. Um, I asked him for a recommendation, and he laughed at me. And he <laughs> said, I, "I'll give you one, just because you know I don't think you'll make it." And I went in, I tested, did my PT. I did pre-service uh, academy, and then uh, I started applying for game warden jobs. 
and I got it while I was in college. I was studying fish and wildlife management and criminal justice. And so I was a game warden from 1990 through 1998. That's a long time. <laughs> you must have really liked it. That was a miserable job. Uh, <laughs> I knew once, <laughs> once I got into law enforcement, I knew that I wanted to do some aspect of law enforcement. Um, I moved from there to uh, Cascade County in Great Falls, Montana. And I started out as a corrections officer there and then moved on to being a deputy. And when I moved to Alaska, I knew that being a being on patrol and being a deputy was completely different, but I, it's always reactive. It's not proactive. So I wanted to do something more proactive. And I know the nature of the position when you have, you know, offenders coming into you and you're supervising them, it's semi-reactive because you're reacting to what they did. That's how they came to be with you in the first place. But I wanted to do something more involved with their lives. And I always had that, you know, that one thing, that one person I wanted to change and, you know, to get through. And I thought that would be the one thing that was the cherry on my, on my uh, Sunday for my career is just to get through to that one person and change their life. And I felt that doing probation and parole, I could do that better than being a, a regular law enforcement, you know, police officer on the street. So, oh, definitely. For sure. I agree. What about you, Chris? I mean, that's definitely, I think, why anyone really gets into probation is that you want to be that positive change. You want to be that, you know, that person to help somebody get back on their feet, um, you know, become a productive member of society. So, uh, Shane, before we get too much more into, you know, what it is being a probation officer in uh, the state of Alaska, tell us a little bit about you um, just as a person. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm an open book. I don't care. You know, it's like I, I see a lot of guys that were, you know, and, and gals that were um, probation parole officers that were super secretive. They didn't want anybody to know anything about them. I'm like, I, the, the, um, the people that I worked with were, uh, well, I'll just put it plainly. I work on a specialized unit. I work with extremely high risk violent sex offenders. Those are the people I supervised. So, a lot of the people didn't want anybody to know their name, didn't want, I mean, I definitely didn't want them to know where I lived, but I didn't care if they knew that I was married at the time, that I had kids and that, you know, what I did before. I mean, I was proud of that. I gave them something to look up to. Um, so for me personally, uh, I'm a biker. I've got tattoos up and down my arms and my legs and my back and I ride, to, I have one, two, three Harleys and two Victories. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I rock. Um, Wait a minute. Um, you had all those tattoos while you were working as PO? Yeah, yeah. yeah my ears are gauged, too. I've had gauges for, I don't know, probably 15 years now. Now, that's interesting. A lot of departments don't even allow them, the POs to wear that type of ear. Um, what do they call it? Gauges? <laughs> gauges, yeah. Yeah, or you know, have visible tattoos, or did you have to cover them up at work? No, no. Uh, when I first started as a deputy in uh, in Montana, I did because the uh, the department would not uh, the the office would not allow me to have tattoos that were visible. So 
I had to wear long sleeve shirts. And in Montana in the summertime, it gets to 100, 105 degrees. It's hot. And so I had to wear a long sleeve shirt all the time until the new sheriff got elected. And he's like, uh, hey, Sarge, why are you wearing a long sleeve shirt? And I'm like, oh, I'm covering up my tattoos. And he goes, looks at me, looks looks down at his arm, and he's a retired Marine Marine gunny sergeant. And he goes, I got tattoos. Go into the supply and get you a short sleeve shirt. You look like you're about to die. So Alaska didn't care. I mean, there's a lot of Alaska state troopers that have, you know, throat tattoos and tattoos all the way down to their fingertips. I mean, they just... They don't care. It's not something that they're bothered by. Um, our department with the Department of Corrections up there, they they didn't care. They just, they're like, you know, just as long as you're not, you know, out doing stupid crap, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a feeling that Alaska's a different kind of place. What's that? I just got a feeling that Alaska's just a different kind of place. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for certain. It, it's so big and so vast. I mean, if you if you look at Alaska, um, you're looking at the population of about 600,000 people in a state that covers one fourth of the lower 48 states. And fully one half of those people live in one city and that's Anchorage. <laughs> so the, the major population is right there in Anch Anchorage is, if you count all of Anchorage, because they're they're not counties there they're boroughs so the the anchors borough is just the city itself is 26 miles long because it's right up along the coast on the cook inlet there and so it's really narrow but it's really really long and then you have jay bear which is one of the biggest uh, it, it's one of the biggest military bases in the united states it's a joint joint base elmendorf and richardson it's a um, army and air force base combined and that thing's huge. It's it's like a city inside of a city. But it it's beautiful. I hated it, but it's beautiful. <laughs> it, it's cold and dark in the wintertime, and it's muggy and rainy, and the sun doesn't go down in the summertime. It's just you can't sleep, and then you're tired all the time. And yeah, like in my mind, I just feel like Atlanta, Alaska, Alaska is like it's just straight. Like frontiers, there's no laws. It's just lawless. It's like the Wild West. I mean, I could be totally wrong. I'm pretty sure I am, but in my mind, that's how I view it. And am I? I mean, like, how is it in terms of law and order and structure and supervising people that are so spread out? But you know, it. A lot of people think that same thing that, you know, and it used to be, there's no doubt about it. It used to be like the wild west. It was, if you got in the trouble in the lower 48 and you had to get away, you went to Alaska because nobody was coming to get you. I mean, even when I was a, a police officer here in the state of Montana, unless you had a $50,000 or more warrant and you were in Alaska, you were just staying there. They just, you know, if you got arrested in Alaska, they'd call you up and say, you want to confirm the warrant? And they're like, yeah, we're not coming to get them. You might as well let them go because it's not worth it. Mm. Um, now it's quite different. It's it's like every place else. I mean, they, well, the only thing that they did a lot, um, I guess is what, I've been gone for three years. So it was about five years ago, they did the justice reform bill. Um, you know, a lot of states are doing that. And they tweaked everything they they took everything but class a class a felonies 
they moved from, you know, so like they started a class B felony and you have class B's turned into class C, class C turned into a D and a D turned into a class A misdemeanor. And then all those things trickled down and it turned into a non-arrestable offense. So that affected us too, because a lot of the things that were, we would normally be able to arrest the probationer for before and give them a little bit of their suspended time or something. We weren't allowed to arrest them for it because it was a non-arrestable offense and it, it affected probation and parole that way. So it kind of went to kind of a lawless land, as you'd put it. And then about two years ago, a year or two ago, they repealed that and they went back the other way. Um, they lowered the felony, um, the felony dollar amount. They put everything back. They made things more for arrestable offenses, gave probation and parole officers their teeth back and said, okay, this is what we're going to do because it was just getting way out of hand. So they redid it. Montana's justice reform bill was modeled after Alaska's and we're seeing the same things now that were happening in Alaska. So it's, I imagine with the new governor and the more conservative leaning um, government in Montana, it'll probably go back the other way again and probably very soon because it's just, it does get out of hand. And I think they had good intentions, but it just didn't work. I mean, that sounds like something we were talking about in our last episode, last episode with the, um, the chief of the Idaho uh, probation and parole, where we're talking about the pendulum swing how yeah. you know they'll go through periods where okay let's try to help everybody let's try to you know kind of soften up a little bit and then you know things get out of hand and then it's well now we have to go back to dropping the hammer on everybody um something that happens unfortunately um you know in the good times they try to give people chances and then when things get out of hand you know they go back the other way so it's just it's a cycle it's a cycle it- it's the nature of the business to help them. You have to be able to, they have to have the consequence, but they have to have accountability. Yeah. They have to have that consequence and that accountability, but they have to have that person that's going to give them a chance and say, okay, you screwed up. Here's your consequence. When you're done, let's try it again. And you just keep pushing them forward and saying, you know, if you keep making the same mistakes over and over and over, then you gotta, you gotta really figure out what you're doing wrong. It, it's it's not the system it's you if you can get that through their head then they're all right but yeah i think a lot of like i have some friends that are probation parole officers in montana and they're saying the same things are happening here as it did there it's like the the offenders in they didn't care they, they there was no consequence for them for the actions that they were doing they're like oh i may have three years suspended time hanging over my head but guess what they're not going to be able to throw me in jail so i'm just going to do it anyway and then, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't have those consequences. You got to have a, a graduated thing, I think. And personally, I use the, the graduated portion of it. You know, you'd get a, at, at the risk of sounding like an old dad, you'd get a stern warning. Like, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you keep messing up and we're going to have an issue. And then I might have them come into the office, you know, twice a week and come and see me. And if they, they did it again, it was like, you're going to check in every morning before you go to work. I want to see it. Um, I might put them on, you know, more frequent UAs. Um, I would go see them at their job, which really embarrassed them because, you know, the nature of my position with probation and parole, I was plain clothes. So I would put my vest on under everything 
and I would conceal my weapon and I'd go in. But if I needed, if it was to the point where I had to go see you at work, I was going in in full uniform. And it just embarrassed the crap out of them. They're like, all right, right, right. <laughs> you know? I get it. You know, don't come to my job. You're embarrassing me. You're scaring everybody. And it's like, well, you know what? Quit messing up. You know, I'd go That's see them. The, the chief didn't like the fact that I would go see them, my probationer at midnight. But I'm like, when when's the time that they're getting in trouble? It's not during the day. They're at work. They're getting in trouble at night because they're, you know, out doing drugs or they're out drinking or they're out past their curfew or whatever. And I said, so if I go check on them in the middle of the night when they're not least expecting it, you know, I was kind of one of those guys. It's like when you catch them. Yeah, that's when you catch them. Like they're doing the dumb things then. So it was easier for me to catch them and, you know, make sure they were doing the right thing. But, you know, I think still the recidivism rate was still really high. So, you know, I think that's, that seems to be pretty standard across the states, you know, with that recidivism, but. Yeah. Yeah. 30%, I believe is the well, yeah, 30% I think is the national recidivism rate, which yeah. is still pretty kind of high if you think about it. It's between 30 and 33 the last time I looked. It, that's, yeah. uh, that's pretty high still, but Alaska. One, one, one in three, one in three. Yeah, Alaska's recidivism rate is actually a lot higher. I don't know why. It's extremely high. It's, do, you it's think it's just the, do you think it's the it's, mindset of the people? Just they're more independent leaning? They're more I don't know, no, kinda of goes back to that uh that wild you know, that that, that uh, I, wild west type mentality. I think part of it's because of the, the size of the state and how isolated things are. So some of the probationers they live in a village where it's a three or four hour plane ride to get to their actual residence. And they would start out, you know, like they'd have to transfer into Anchorage. They'd start out with us. And then if they were doing well and they had a, a long period of time where they were following the rules, doing treatment, doing everything that they needed to, we'd allow them to go back to the village, back home, be with their family members and stuff. And that's when you'd see them get in trouble. So I think that was like, for that state, I think is the big determining factor for recidivism. That and that alcohol there is just rampant. So, so I'm gonna. So if they get arrested in the northern part of the state, right? They then they, I guess they what go to is all court in Atlanta, in Anchorage, or no. are different court courts in the state. Yeah, there's different courts in the state. It's like it's like everywhere else. Uh, you have dif different districts. So you have District 1 through 9 in Alaska. And district court will be in um, the closest village or the closest town that actually has the ability to have a courtroom. And some of those, you know, there's, there's only nine of them in the entire state. So some of them are quite a ways away from the, the villages. There's a big area that that judge or those judges um, actually have jurisdiction over. So yeah, it, they would go to the closest one. A lot of the times the troopers would call me and say, Hey Coop, what do you want to do with this person? And like, do you, do you have the ability to hold them? And they're like, yeah, we, you know, we can throw them in here and, and we'll put them on the next plane out. And they get them on the, they escort them on the next plane out and meet them at the, at the airport and put them in the patrol car and take them to the office, do the paperwork wow. and on Anchorage. And then they answer for what they're doing 
in a different district in Anchorage because that's where they're supervised from. So, so everyone in the state is supervised from Anchorage. No, no, no. You have like if you go north into like Bethel, um, Bethel has its own probation parole office. Um, they have Anchorage has four or Alaska has four probation parole districts. Um, Anchorage is its own district. It, Anchorage is district three. The rest of them are bigger swaths of area, but they have less people. Um, active, when I left, the active probationers, um, probation and parole uh, count in Anchorage Bull itself was like 4,700 people. That, you got to understand that the office in Anchorage has uh, 78 probation and parole officers in it just to handle the caseload. Some of the general caseload guys, their caseloads were insanely big. And you're looking at 120 to 150 people, a person that they're supervising. Whereas on the, on the, the sex offender unit that I work on, we were capped at 75. So we weren't allowed to have more than 75 people on our caseload. And there was 10 of us on the unit. There was 750 sex offenders in Anchorage. You no, know, those that's your general offenders. So you know the, uh, oh, anywhere from the the drunks to the to the murderers were on a, what they call a general caseload. Anything that's specialized is you have specialized caseloads. So you have the mental health caseload, and then you have probation the the, uh, the sex offender caseload. And the sex offender and the mental health caseloads. Mental health caseloads were capped at 25 per PO, and the sex offenders were capped at 75 per PO. So, and you yeah. said there were 10. You said there were 10 sex offender POs. Yeah. So, that means, so if they each have 75, then there are 700. There's 750 sex offenders in Anchorage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A lot of them. They don't want probation. They don't want probation. Yeah. Or parole. Those those people they're not all just from Anchorage though. And that's the, that's the weird thing is because um, the only other place that has sex offender therapy. So they have the, the therapist and the treatment to go to is Juno. So they can either go to Juno or they can go to Anchorage because Anchorage has five um, therapists that work exclusively with sex offenders. So they have to do their, their treatment, their sex offender treatment. And that's required for every sex offender. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter what offense it was. You have to go through treatment. Um, and a lot of them actually have to do it in prison. They'll have to go to treatment in prison. They graduate from prison and then they continue when they get out on probation and parole. And then they'll graduate from their program and they'll be on um, most of them, it takes three to four years for them to graduate. Some of them will never get away from it, but then they'll do like maintenance things. So if I had several that were, um, not the extreme violent ones that were, you know, pretty easy to deal with, but they would graduate the program within two or three years, do everything that they had to show up to their meetings three times a week. And then after that, it was like they check in with the with the treatment group once a month and they'd go in, they'd have a meeting with the treatment group once a month and then they'd come back and report to me and that treatment provider would report to me. So it was, a, it's, it's a different world when you're dealing with sex offenders. 
than it is so, for general caseload. All right, so let me so let me understand. So regardless of where they live in the state, which is it's a big state, like you said, it's about a quarter of the the continental United States. So let's say they live on the east side of the state, and there's there's only two places in the whole state that offer sex offender treatment. They have to do it. So mm-hmm. they're required to live in Anchorage until they complete the treatment. Yes. And then after they complete the treatment and they're in good standing, then you will allow them to go back to wherever part of the state they live. Yeah. Yeah. They'll but then if they get in trouble again, then they get arrested and you got to put them on a plane to bring them back to Anchorage. Yeah. It's, it's that or oh, they'll transfer their, they'll tr- sometimes they'll just transfer their probation. They'll, they'll transfer their supervision. I don't know if you guys do that where they can transfer yeah. from one next or one office to the next sometimes they'll just transfer their supervision so if i had somebody out in dillingham say and dillingham is on the west coast of alaska out across the inlet and it's it's really isolated if they were from dillingham there was actually a probation parole officer in dillingham if he had enough availability on his caseload i call him up and his name was rex Crawford, and I'd say hey rex can you take so and so he's like yeah put in the paperwork or he'd say no i'm I'm full. We just can't deal with it right now. And so they'd have to stay. But if they could transfer, they would. And they'd, they'd be supervised by a different a different PO. But they had to go somewhere where there was a specialized probation parole officer. Otherwise, they weren't allowed to go. So wow. if the second wanted to go back out to ANIAC, well, there's no probation parole officer in ANIAC. And there's no, there's no, um, the sex offender probation parole officer in Antioch, then that was almost an automatic. No, it's not happening. You're not going back. You have to get everything done, finish your probation parole here. And they would just move and then they'd start over. And it was tough on them. It was really hard. And a lot of them were just like, I just want to go home. You can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Brittany, can you imagine that? Tell the offenders now you have to move to a whole other part of the state. Because we ain't got no POs out there for you. No, that's crazy. People who live 30 minutes away had a problem with coming to probation. So I can't even imagine having to deal with that. <laughs> you have to your whole life. They get to see me one, you know, once once a month. They'd have to drive an hour, hour and a half just to get to see me. And if I needed to go do a home visit with them or something, I'd have to drive an hour, an hour and a half to get there. So it, yeah, it's difficult. It was it was a different animal up there than it is in other states. Like that's what really surprises people is the how the vastness and what you have to do to actually be on probation and parole. And in Alaska is one of those weird places where you don't have. I mean, you ha- Alaska is you if you finish two thirds of your sentence, your probation or your your prison sentence, they automatically kick you out of jail. And you automatically go on probation or parole. They don't. They don't give you a choice. They don't say you're serving all your time. If you serve, you do two thirds of your time, you're out, and you get assigned a PO in an office. And they say this is the closest place to you that fits your needs. There you go. <laughs> so it's kind of do you have some offense? Like oh, mandatory post. It's like mandatory post release. Then, like you're you're gonna you're gonna take this. Yeah. You have no choice. You can't max out. They can't max out. That you have no choice. You get out on supervision. Yeah, that's how it is where I'm at. Go ahead. Do you have some offenders who would just quit and stop reporting and all that stuff just so they wouldn't have to deal with it? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I think I, I think everybody has those where they're just like. Oh, I feel like you would have a whole lot more though. <laughs> some of them wouldn't even show up. They'd be yeah. like the day that they're supposed to be in my office, their first day of probation, they wouldn't even show up. So I'd try yeah, to get a hold of everything would be completely, you know, non-existent. So I'd have to issue a warrant. And then at, I had a couple of them that were three and four years before they actually got picked up. I'm like, dude, if you can do that well and not break the law for three or four years, why didn't you just come and see me? And we could have didn't get caught for three or four years. Correct. Didn't get caught for three or four years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> good correction. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. But yeah, they didn't get caught for three or four years. And if you didn't get caught for three or four years, you know, it would have been pretty easy just to not do stupid crap for three or four years and come to see me once a month. It wasn't that hard. Yeah, yeah but for three or four years, they didn't have to come see you. They didn't have to worry about you coming to their job. They didn't have to submit to drug screens. They didn't have to go to treatment. I would do video calls with the guys on the fishing boats. So it, during the fishing season, the crabbing season and stuff, the guys weren't, I mean, that's a big business. So Alaska is fishing and, and crabbing. So they would, they'd get a job and they'd get hired onto a boat. Well, you'd have to do a video call with them um, and they'd have to check in. So most of the boats had the ability to have like they had like a fax machine. So they'd fax me in their monthly reporting statement and then they'd call me or video call me so I could talk to them. We'd discuss everything, how things are going on the boat, this, that, the other thing. What are your plans when you're done fishing? Are you, you know, you're not spending all your money out there being dumb in a port or this or that. When they get to port, they'd have to check in with me again. And they're like, okay, we're unloading the boat. I got to go. <laughs> like, all right, get, you know. Get out there, behave yourself. I'll take that. At least you know they're on a boat. You know they're not getting in trouble. Yeah. I mean, how much trouble can you get into on a boat? (laughs) They can still be getting high and drunk on the boat. Yeah, they can. They do. There's several times. I would. They'd check in at like Dutch Harbor. They'd go to Unalaska, Dutch Harbor, and they'd call me. And there's a probation parole office there that's not manned. It it it's really funny. It's not manned. There's you would have to fly out there to check in on your probationers. So the local police officer is somebody that was a police officer in Great Falls, Montana. And I knew him. His name was Matt Jones. And I'd call Matt and say, Hey, I got somebody coming in off the boat. They're going to, you know, they're going to load up the boat or they're, they're dumping off. Can you UA him? And Matt would UA him there and he'd make sure that everything got faxed over to me and stuff. So the, the local law enforcement officers, all the POs, or the, all the police officers, all the state troopers and stuff work with you. So they made the job. Yeah, that's cr- I couldn't imagine calling a cop to ask them to do a UA. I couldn't imagine it. They'd be like, what? I ain't got nothing to do with us. Wow. Yeah, they, they, they're just like, yeah, we can do it for you. No problem. It, it, there was a lot that the, the brotherhood of law enforcement in Alaska, I think, is stronger than anywhere I've ever seen. Um, I mean, you go corrections, corrections officers, probation officers, um, the troopers, the local PD, and then the troopers have a division that is called uh, court security officers, CSOs. So they kind of act like deputy sheriffs in other states. Um, but they do, they're responsible for moving prisoners all over the state. They're responsible for all the court security and all that they're a regular trooper they just wear a different uniform 
and even those guys, I mean, they, everybody is one big family and it's really, really tight knit. There's only in the entire state of Alaska, there's 378 um, Alaska state troopers. There's, uh, I can't remember how many POs. I mean, there's probably 400 POs in the state, but the local law enforcement, just Anchorage itself had 470 police officers and they were short manned all the time, but yeah everybody works together because you have to because there's <laughs> there's no other way around it <laughs> wow Brittany, that's a different kind of beast right there sounds kind of fun low-key um what is the salary like for po's over there uh your starting wages in alaska is uh i believe it was 1945 an hour um, when i retired i was up to 4235 Plus the benefits. I mean, I made, because I'd been there so long, I worked four 10 hour shifts too. So I worked Monday through Thursday, I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. Mm -hmm. um, then you had your leave. I made 12 every two weeks. I made 12.84 hours of leave every two weeks. So you get a lot of time off too. I mean, but the wages are good and it's a, it's the best health insurance that you could ever ask for. <laughs> they cover everything. <laughs> That, that means a lot. Now, not a lot of people can say that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you know, I work at a local hardware store now. I run equipment at that hardware store. And there, I mean, my insurance in Alaska for the premium thing cost me $45 a month. That was it. And the state picks up the rest of it. Just at the local store here through the corporation that I work for, I'm paying $184 a month for my insurance. And it's not very good. So <laughs> like, <I> don't want. <laughs> but it, you wouldn't go back to Alaska. You wouldn't move back there. No, no. I mean, it, I'd go back because I, I still have my daughter lives there. Uh, yeah, I'm a daughter, all my buddies and my friends and stuff live there. But I'd go back and visit, go fishing and go hunting. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm done living <laughs> <there>. <laughs> too isolated. I mean, it's like living on an island. Because there's one highway that goes out of Alaska. It goes from Alaska. You have to go all the way to the northwest tip of Alaska and then come back down through the Yukon in Canada. And then, I mean, it's from my house here, it's 3,800 miles just to get to Anchorage. Ooh. So it's a long, long drive. And there's nothing in northern, northern Canada. There's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> So how how was how dealing with the winter and probation in Alaska? Because I mean, I can I lived in northern PA, and you know we got snow, especially off Lake Erie, and you know mm -hmm. we, we get some snow. But I can't. I, I know in Alaska it's just ridiculous. My dad's from Matoorsville. Oh, okay. Williamsport, Matoorsville. That's where my dad okay. was born. I have a ton of family there still. Um. Dealing with it because, well, Anchorage, you get, um, I think the average snowfall in Anchorage alone in that big city is 98 inches a year. Mm. You get a ton of snow. And it, when it starts snowing, it usually starts snowing like mid-October. And the snow doesn't go away until June. Like, the, the snow until <laughs> June. June. Yeah. Just about the time where it's completely light out you know when you get to the summer equinox in june 
it the sun will go down at about 11 30 it goes right below the horizon then it's right back up at three o'clock in the morning in the winter time the sun comes up at about 10 in the 10 in the morning and then goes right back down at like 3 3 15 in the afternoon the only way I can describe that is like, you know, put a little, little tiny light bulb in one lamp in the corner of your living room and turn that on, turn the rest of the lights off. And that's the kind of light you have all winter long. It's like the street lights are on constantly dealing with the snow and everything. It's not so bad because people don't go anywhere in the wintertime unless they're flying out to Hawaii or Mexico or something. So it wasn't so bad. The winter, Wintertime is actually easier to deal with the probationers, except where they get bored, and that's when they start drinking and doing stupid crap at home. Because it's dark all the time, it's miserable, and it's a depressing. Lot, <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of de- a lot of domestic violence, I would assume. Yes. Alaska has Alaska is number one for domestic violence and number one for suicides in the country. Yeah. Damn. And I think they're still number one. They're either number one or number two for um, alcohol abuse. I know I'll be drunk if I was there. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I'm not gonna say we did. You said earlier that um, part of your duties was doing patrol. Tell, t- tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, so we, um, because it's a community, community based, I mean, we would go do bar checks. Uh, you'd walk through bars checking for probationers. You'd walk through the parks. Um, you'd patrol the downtown. It was the community presence that they really wanted. They wanted us out there to be seen. They know that we were doing our jobs in the community, that we weren't just letting all these people loose in the community and just not worrying about them for a month, that we were out there at night. We were out there during the day. Um, you know, we'd go to businesses and check on them and say, Hey, you guys have any problems? Um, walk through the bus there, the bus station there. Buses are a fairly big deal, you know, community transit there. So we'd walk through the bus stations and the managers would come out and say hi to us and make sure, you know, and they'd say, Hey, you know, so-and-so is over here. They're laying in the corner drunk or, you know, they're kind of, they're, you know, so-and-so is causing a problem. And we'd go talk to them, chat them up and, you know, try to help them out and, if they needed help, we'd get them the help that they needed. I mean, we were very community-based that way. And so, yeah, we did a lot of patrols. And I did a lot of patrols at night. We'd have hotels call us and say, hey, um, I think one of your probationers here, they're partying in a room or, you know, something's going on. So we'd call the PD and say, hey, you guys want to meet us over there just in case there's none of our guys there. At least you're there as backup and, you know. A lot of times PD would say, hey, we have a we have a suspicion, you know, suspect or we think it's one of your probation officers, you know, one of your probationers or parolees in the in so-and-so's place or whatever. Can you meet us there and back us up? And you know, we do a lot of that. I know you said you guys went through the full um, police academy, which is um uh one of the one of the things we were talking about on the uh, Two Hats podcast Instagram page um, about whether you know probation officers should be full sworn law enforcement or you know we or you know kind of have us be our own separate thing. Um, so you guys are fully blown law enforcement. Did do you guys have like full police powers? Yes. Yeah, you have uh, you have the the full powers of any other police officer in the state. But the difference is is that your jurisdiction is only in your district. So wherever you're at, like I couldn't go to Juneau 
and be in Juneau and see something happen and arrest somebody in Juneau. My jurisdiction, my scope of my authority was only in the Anchorage district. So I couldn't do that. But yeah. And our, our academy is not exactly the same as it is for, you know, a, a road patrol or, you know, something like that. It's shortened compared to theirs, but it's lengthened in one aspect. So we have to learn more about the courts and how that system plays out and how to do all that stuff and how to actually be um, in community supervision, whereas they're learning how to enforce the law and not get, you know, and drive and not get killed and stuff. So there was a slight separation there. So did you, did you guys have like the power to arrest non-probationers? Yes. Were crimes committed in your presence? Yes, we do. Have you ever yeah. done that? Have I? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were, in fact, we were patrolling. There's one of my favorite coffee shops in Anchorage is downtown. It's called Claudie Brothers. The place has got the best coffee in the world. It's awesome. Um, my partner, Carl, and I were driving downtown, and two guys were standing in the middle of the street fighting, like literally in the middle of this four-lane road, and they're just going to blows. And so... We just stopped, flipped the lights on, stopped, jumped out, tackled them, arrested them for, you know, drunk and disorderly and assault. And I just called the, I called PD, uh, APD and said, hey, can you guys come pick these guys up? We're uh, actually going to do something else. And they're like, oh, yeah, had all the paperwork done for them. They transported them up to jail for us. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wait, so did that count? Did that count as your arrest? And like you had to go to court and, you know, do the whole like uh, conviction step, or is it more like you just detained them? No, that was my arrest, and I had to deal with all the court paperwork. I had to deal with uh, going to court. I had to do everything. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So where I'm at, we're able to, you know, commit. We can detain people for crimes committed in our presence, mm -hmm. um, but then we have to call local PD or the sheriff's office, and then once they get there, relinquish, uh, you know, custody of them. So yeah. that's just, that's actually interesting that you guys actually have the ability to actually file charges and do all that yep we can do we could do the whole kit and caboodle and 99 percent of the time they didn't and it would be in that situation like you you just stated where the probation officer because a lot of them were not um, in alaska you have the option to be armed or not be armed um, so you don't have to be armed as a probation officer in alaska the people that are prior law enforcement, like me, you know, you go in and you qualify, you take your instruction, you qualify, you're done. Those are the people that didn't have firearms or that didn't want to do it, that were more on that leaning towards social services type folks. They were the ones that would detain them. They'd have tasers and stuff, but they'd detain them and then call APD. APD would come and take care of it and do their charges and everything. But for me and my partners all on my unit, all of us were prior law enforcement. We were all, except for one, sorry, um, Zhang wasn't, but we were all armed. Um, we were in our unit. We were required to be armed. We had to be armed because of the nature of the people we dealt with. So, so even the non-armed ones, they still went through the post-academy but it is still chose not to, so they didn't have to do firearms as post, part of the post academy. No, no, if they chose not to be armed, we offered, because I'm a firearms instructor too. So, I mean, I, I firearms, taser, um, CQB, um, 
one-on-one control tactics, master armor. You know, I was kind of the, the hat. I wore the, all of the hats on my unit. So everybody bring me their guns to fix and all that kind of stuff. We did offer classes so that they could go qualify if they wanted to, like if they got into it and went, you know, I, I had a couple of bad experiences. I think maybe I better have my firearm with me because in my, in my mind, you're wearing a badge and you're wearing the body and you're driving a marked vehicle. They don't separate that out. They see the badge and they see the handcuffs. They don't separate out the fact that, or they'll see the taser there and, they don't separate out that. So it's, you want to have those tools available to you at any time. But so we would offer the classes if they wanted to take it, you know, and I, it was only, you know, the firearms instruction post Academy was only a week, you know, take them out, do one week worth of basically classroom time, teach them how to shoot. And then we do another week in the range. And by the end of the range time, they should technically be able to qualify. There was a lot of them that couldn't. They tried over and over and over and they just, and some people just aren't very good with a firearm. And mm-hmm. the people are like, you know, we can keep trying, but I think you may want to find a different job. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> I, 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 it is horrible to say, but some people need to realize that if, you know, they, they might want to find a different career. I mean, if you're, if you're at that point where you're having a hard time with enforcing the laws and enforcing their conditions and stuff, maybe you want to go do social services or something, something Mm -hmm. that's a bit more geared toward your mindset or your physical abilities. Yeah. The job is not for everybody. No, it's not. I mean, after the length of time I put in in law enforcement altogether and my different sections of my career everybody's asking me here when i moved home you know why don't you why don't you go to be a deputy sheriff or why don't you put in to be the the town marshal or why don't you go back to probation parole and i just i've I've had enough i'm just done i just want to be the normal everyday guy and not worry about it but i still carry my where's you down (laughs) where's you down over time it does yeah it does wait you say you still carry your gun and your badge Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Because yeah. I have a retired ID and badge. So, in most states, if you have your retired credentials, you don't have to have a concealed weapons permit. And Mon- the, uh, Montana 218 uh, Law Enforcement, Leosha Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act. It's a national yeah. law that yep. allows um, uh, retired and current law enforcement within certain criteria. Something you guys, you know, kids, make sure you look it up, Google it. But there are some yep. criteria you have to you have to meet, and you can actually carry your firearm anywhere in the country, even in states where you're not allowed to carry firearms, like New Jersey and New York. The catch, though, is that it doesn't cover you in terms of like ammunition capacity or ammunition types, depending on what state you go to. So, like yep. you know, California, New York, New Jersey, I think they're like limited, like ten rounds. So you can't say, oh, well, you know, I'm a I'm a cop from you know, Georgia, I'm just going to go up there with my Glock 17, with my 17 rounds in the chamber, in the magazine. Uh, no, that's technically illegal. You're good. You're covered under the gun part, but you're not covered underneath the ammo part. So, right. make sure you read the laws. <laughs> and Montana you know, Montana is a constitutional carry state, too, so you don't need to have a uh, concealed weapon permit in the state. Which oh, is a little scary. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people that should not 
<laughs> I, I would agree with that. There are some people that should not own guns or carry them because um, they don't do it smartly, safely, and they don't have good judgment. Yeah, and that was scary in Alaska too because Alaska doesn't have a concealed weapons permit. So, uh, and considering that most people, I mean, they, I think there's almost more guns per capita in the state of Alaska than anywhere else, and most people are armed there in one capacity. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask you. Is like, how can you have officers that choose not to be armed in a state like Alaska where guns are so prevalent? They're everywhere, and everybody has one. I don't or know. Two, or weird things that just blew me away when we we're when I was actually going through the probation parole portion of the academy. People were opting not to go to the firearms instruction. I'm like, how can you opt not to go? Isn't this required? And they told me, oh no, it's not required. You don't have to carry as a probation parole officer in in, in Alaska. And I'm like, why wouldn't you want to? I mean, it's just. If anything, it's your, sometimes it can be your lifesaver. Sometimes it's just a deterrent, just having it there. People well, you know, back up and okay, I'm done. But I don't know. I don't know. I did that. I am just as confused as you are on that. Why they would say you don't have to carry. You have that option too or not to. It just did boom. Like I was a juvenile probation officer in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. And our, my department, you actually had the choice um, whether you wanted to carry or not. Um, and the, the firearms portion is just like how you described. You got a week of the classroom stuff, going over use of force, the actual, you know, how to use the gun, break it down, clean it, all that good stuff. Then you got a, a whole week on the range where you actually get your marksmanship. You got to qualify and all that. Mm -hmm. And I want to say out of my department, like I said, we had about 30 officers, I think only like five, between five and seven actually carried. Um, and I just could never understand it, you know what I mean? Especially because Westmoreland County was so rural. And I understand a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're working with juveniles and, you know, it's not as, you know, as risky. I would, I would disagree. I said, I said juveniles are, are, are more dangerous than adults because they don't think anything through. Right. They're very impulsive. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They so, don't yeah. think of the, the action. They don't think about that. Then again, most of the probation adults don't either, but I mean, they're definitely very unpredictable in, in my book. And so anybody that's a juvenile probation parole officer, I go, and my hat's off to you guys because that is a hard job. It is, it is, it is. Uh, actually, this current state I'm in now, their, their juvenile officers don't even carry at all, which I just think is, is crazy. Um, it's crazy, but we're not going to get into that right now. Um, <laughs> Now, when you were telling the story about the arresting the guys in the fight, you said you turned the lights on. Do you guys, do you guys have emergency lights? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They're, now they're jealous. It's a slick top. So, I mean, they're in the dash on the up in the windshield in the back window. They're not, you know, uh, they're not marked as a normal police officer's car would be. But yeah, we flip the lights on. We have lights, sirens, the whole kit and caboodle. Wow. So what what are your uh your policy in terms of using lights and signs, like what are like what would you actually use them for? Just you know, being a regular probation officer. Any any the rules govern probation and parole, as with any other police officer. It, it the those are the rules. I mean, they, it's if you're going code three somewhere, if you're you know if you're making a quick stop, if you're just you know 
99% of the time, nobody pulled anybody over for speeding or anything. But if you're pulling over to help somebody, you know, vehicle in distress, you know, public assistance, you know, citizen assist, things like that. If you're going to an emergency, if you're the closest law enforcement officer, I mean, obviously you're going to turn your lights and sirens on. You're going to go, but you're when you do something like that, you are you fall under every other rule and regulation of every police officer in the state as far as your responsibility driving while you're going to a a, a call on code. So if you have your lights and sirens on, you better be paying attention because if you hit somebody or something, it's on you. Um, and like with a police officer, most regular police officers, if they get into an accident and they are speeding because they're trying to get to a, a call, uh, that's usually their fault. They don't look at it as, uh, as the citizen's fault. And they, there's only been, I think, one person in my time up there got in an accident when they were going to a call and that was because they ran the red light they didn't slow they didn't give caution at the red light i mean it's the same way as everybody else you see a police officer going through a red light in their lights and sirens they automatically hit the brakes and you start to pull in you check make sure everybody's stopping getting out of your way and then you go this person didn't they just blew right through it and t-boned somebody <clears throat> It's the only time I've ever seen them, you know, somebody, they got in a little bit of trouble for that one. And we had to pay out for the medical expenses and the car and all that. So, But you guys don't respond to calls for service, though. No, no, no. Dispatch, when we'd go on duty and we'd go, you know, we'd call on, dispatch knew because our badge numbers are different. So my badge was P224. And I'd tell them, you know, dispatch P224-108 and just tell them where I'm going, doing, you know, we'd always call out wherever we're at address and all that, just like any, any other law enforcement officer. But when a call for service came in, they knew that even if I was, you know, right there, they knew that we were probation and parole and we were probably dealing with somebody else and not to call us onto that. There were times where we were 10, eight and just out patrolling. I'm the closest unit and dispatch was like, Hey, everybody else is busy. Can you go to this one? Boom. And you go. But they made it a general rule that they didn't call us for calls of service. No. So what what in what circumstances would you guys respond code three to? Just another like officer need assistance call. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we were close law enforcement and you know an officer needed assistance, we would we'd go code three and we would just tell them you know hey, P two twenty four code three two scene and off we go. Now, bro, you had to do that too, right? You guys had to um communicate with dispatch when you guys went to houses and stuff like that yeah yeah we have radios in the car our cars <laughs> our cars probably weren't half as equipped as you guys cars were you guys, you guys have have just the radio yeah just the radio <laughs> yeah. oh after, i don't know if you're familiar shane but the department that i worked for we didn't have weapons we didn't have oc we didn't have anything no no vests anything we just had us and a radio in the car <laughs> <laughs> and you were expected to go to people's houses, but they don't go into yeah. houses. They just go to the front door. Really? Yeah. Chris always makes fun of me for that, but yeah. Oh man, see, so it was I'd... very much so on the social work side of things. Yeah, Alaska treats the the home as an extension of a jail cell. Wow. So if you had search conditions in your probation and parole conditions, that your your home was like any other place. So. You walk in, tell them, hey, 
have a seat, handcuff them, sit them down in a chair after you cleared it, and then you'd search the home. Oh, God, no. Only, like, the specialty caseload officers were allowed to go in and look like the sex offender officers or the DV officers, and they could go in and search, but they didn't have handcuffs or weapons still. Oh, wow. I would put these out without. That's that's crazy. That's just, that's not safe. It's only a matter of time that somebody gets hurt. Don't say that. Why would you say? That? I mean, it's just because it, it is. It's just a fact. It's like how do you how do you how do you require somebody to go do that stuff, but you don't give them the equipment they need to do it safely? Yeah, I you know think- what? You have to take that up with the director. You want me to call him? I'm no, just go ahead, go ahead, like, really. Yeah, we got we got to do that. We got to get them on for an interview. And ask them why, why they make bad decisions. Uh, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you want to keep your job, right? <laughs> well, actually, I stopped working there in July last year. So, oh. yeah. Well, yeah, it's good and good and bad, I suppose, probably. Yeah. I mean, we they never had any problems. There was never anywhere, uh, any issue with an officer getting hurt or something. Searching somebody's house and going through their stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe what they do there is fine. There and hasn't question, been an issue. My so question what, then is, what happens when you find something they don't want you to find? And then now there's a conflict. Yeah, true. But they just they have to call local one, law enforcement. Yeah. One-on-one control tactics, law enforcement, regular law enforcement come and see you. So what do you do now, though? Oh, me? Oh. Oh, well, aside from this awesome podcast that you're being featured on today, <laughs> I'm a digital creator. So I make YouTube videos. <laughs> I oh, create content yeah, for different businesses online. So my media, my social media presence is what I do. I'm just being me. <laughs> and I get paid to do that. And it's amazing. And I how consult long, people one-on-one too. How long were you in probation for all that? I did that for almost five years. Okay. How you gonna start interviewing me? Hold on, Shane. This is not turning out the way it was. I don't ask Chris the same. I'm gonna ask him the same question. So, oh, go ahead, ask him. He loves questions. Transition back to civilian life. No, oh, for me it was a breeze. You are asking me or Brittany? Both of you. Did you? I mean, you obviously going back and forth on duty. You know, it that's kind of normal. You have to do a certain amount of transition. But for Brittany, it. Did you find it difficult to transition back or was it just like this load taken off your shoulders? Really? It was a relief a little bit because I was kind of over it. But I mean, that job was more so like a social worker. Like I, it would be different for you or Chris, I think, because it was more law enforcement oriented for you two. But for me, it's just like they would come to my office and be like, hey, what's up? You know, it's just more cordial and less long. <laughs> i'm just being real okay there you go okay so chris your turn you answer the question um i mean i'm still i mean i just transitioned from being a juvenile officer uh in western pa to where i am at now where i'm adult adult uh probationary parole officer and I'm, i'm specialized in drug court so, I mean, there wasn't really a gap. I literally left one job, started the other job. I mean, I had to go through two academies, but I mean, it is what it is. Um, I think I actually prefer working with adults now that I think about it than when I was working with juveniles. Um, you just, we can just do more. Um, I think there's, it's more, I think there's more impact on 
actual community safety, working with the adults and working with juveniles. So I don't know if that right. answers your question or not. I would think no, it that- doesn't. <laughs> well, it's, t- it's tough for him, Brady, because he's still active duty. So there's there's a <laughs> true. Me too. We went. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still in these streets, putting up a good fight. And Which that- Chris and I were just talking about a little bit about how his caseload is going right now. Chris, want to elaborate and tell the family how your caseload is doing? Uh, I mean, it's just. It is what it is. It's drug court. Um, I think we talked about it when we did the um, the episode with the other drug court officer uh, up in PA. Um, can't remember his name. Uh, Matt. I think his name was Matt. Um, it's just with drug court. It's either they're in compliance or they abscond. There really isn't anything in between. So I'm just kind of dealing, you know, dealing with that right now. Um, so yeah, that's really it. I mean, for a lot of absconders. A lot of do you, that's that's do you find it with drug court? Is there a lot more absconding than there is with like your other caseload? Yes, yes, because they know that, um, you know, with drug court, if they, if they're, you know, constantly, there's a lot of re- requirements on them. There's a lot of things they have to do. They have to, you know, participate in treatment. They got to meet with their case manager. They have to work with the team. They got to come to court every two weeks. Um, you know, they have to they have to uh, report for color call drug screens, which they have to call every day. And if their yeah. color is called, they got to drop whatever they're doing that day and come. I mean, it's it, there are a lot of requirements. And I mean, they're all there for a purpose, and they're all there to build um, build on each other to get the offender where they need to be to be a responsible person in society and get them off drugs. Um, but a lot of them, you know, they don't want to stop. And addiction is hard. You know, I've been yeah. working with, uh, with addiction even back when I was a juvenile officer. And addiction is really hard. It is a disease. I totally believe that. And, you know, it's hard for people to get off. And it's hard for people to make that change. Now, when they decide to make that change, drug court is the best place to make that change because you have so much support. You have a whole team of people wrapped around you. You have all these different resources available yeah. to you. Um, you know, from housing to health and, you know, family. And there's so much stuff that's available to you that if you decide that your goal is to get clean and you really want it for yourself and you get in this program, like I said, you have all the support that you're looking for. But if you're just doing it, but if you're just doing it because you want to, um, you don't want to go to jail, you don't want to go to prison and you're just taking it as a, as a option to avoid those, kind of incarceration and you don't really mean it it's going to be too hard for you yeah it's going to be rough but i think there's a disparity there between like um what you're talking about with with drug court they get all these resources to be able to help them through and and this you know all their addiction and be able to help prop them up and push them forward and get away from that and be productive again with sex offenders it's similar there's all these resources that they have available to them they have you know they don't they have their treatment they have all these people insulating them and helping them and making sure that they're not acting on the things that are going through their mind and all that i mean and to move them forward so that they can control those things and be able to control their life but then you look at the the probationers and parolees and stuff that are there for 
you know, they're just, they have violent tempers or they have, you know, there's very few resources. I mean, violent guys, yeah, they have anger management and there's very few resources for those other people, those other probation parolees to use to insulate themselves, to be able to get through the whole process. Cause it's not easy. I mean, I, I said, it's easy. You have to come to my office once a month, unless you get in trouble, but yet they have all these other restrictions that make it hard on them and there's no resources for them. So I, I, I think that some of that needs to be turned toward the average guy that, you know, yeah, you, you got caught stealing a bunch of, bunch of crap, you know, and you got put on probation, you're nonviolent offender, you know, you need some resources to help you out to get through, maybe, you know, help you get through school to, to help find a place to live, to find a new job, things like that. They don't have those resources readily available to them. They have to go search it out themselves. I think that makes it really hard for them. Yeah, that's something that Brittany talks about all the time is that the lack of resources. And I know she always talks about, you know, lack of transportation to even get around um, right. to place, you know, get to their treatment or get to classes and things like that. I understand because, I mean, I, when I started out, I was a line officer. So I got, you know, regular probation, parole cases. And yeah, I mean, I might, well, we have places, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work in a, in a city where there are resources um, for people. Um, but it's still a lot of, you kind of got to do it yourself. I'll refer you, I'll set the appointment, but I'm not going to pick you up and take you. Right. You got to figure you know out how I mean? to. Yeah. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not assigning you a case manager that's going to call and check up on you. You know what I mean? You're not going to come back and see the judge every so often to see, you know, how you're doing. You know, right. the only time you see the judge is after I arrest you for violating like they're self it's like they're self-paced and some of them just can't do it yes that is true they just they can't yeah. it is true. where else you want to know chris i keep asking you guys questions what else you want to <laughs> i don't i don't mind at all i don't mind at all so what made, how did you decide that it was it was it was time for you to be to retire and be done um i got into an incident um I won't, I won't go into all the gore details, but it was a, a pretty violent incident and it bothered me to the point that I said, I don't think that I am capable of doing this job anymore. I, I, I got to the point where it's been so long, I mean, 26 years in law enforcement and I was just like, I think this is better left for somebody else to have to deal with. And I didn't want to have that, that weight and that pressure anymore. Um, I, although I still volunteer for like Habitat for Humanity, I volunteer for, there, there's a program called Starts, Stand Against Rape. And I volunteer for that. I volunteer for the Special Olympics and stuff. You know, I do all this community things. I mean, I, even the, uh, <laughs> the civic group that does all the flowers in town, um, I, I volunteered with them here a couple of weeks ago and helped them redo all their, their whiskey barrels for planting their flowers in town and stuff. So I still do that. It's just that law enforcement aspect of it. It just kind of clicked in my head. I think I'm, I think I'm done. And when you get to that point where you say, I'm not sure I can do this job there, I'm capable of it. I was physically capable, but mentally, I think I was just worn out. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I said, you know, after that one incident, I just said, I, I'm just done. I don't think I can do this. I don't want to see this kind of thing anymore. 
without going into details about that incident, do you feel like your department had your back regarding whatever happened? Because I know that's a I know that's a fear a lot of POs have is that we don't we're afraid that the department doesn't have our backs like you know police departments have their officers' backs. I think there was a it's a yes and a no, honestly. It was it was a yes in the fact that my supervisor and my chief sought me out um, and pulled me aside and said, here is, here, here's a couple of phone numbers. Here's some resources. This is what we want you to do if you need them. Um, but as far as anything that was required to do it, no, but they did, they did have my back as far as, you know, saying, Hey, you know, if you need some, some help, if you need to talk to somebody, if you need this, you need that, just let us know and we'll be able to take care of it. But as far as guiding me there, yeah, they did that. But pushing me to it and saying, hey, you have to go do this because we're more concerned about your mental ability, you know, your mental state or how this is affecting you and your job or your family life. No, they, they honestly just didn't care. It was like, here, here you go. You'll be back on Monday, right? <laughs> wow. That kind of So, yeah, I don't think that that's one of the things I think is missing from any probation parole department any any corrections of department period whether you're a corrections officer if you're probation parole i think that's lacking is the not just you know it's self-care but the department's um concern about your health and well-being to be able to say, okay, you're if you have a major incident, you're required to go see you see the psychologist and to open it up. Now we did start after that. Um, I have a couple of friends of mine that are that are doctors, um, and then I worked with the uh, U.S. Marshals, the FBI, and everything on the um, Internet Crimes ICAC, Internet Crimes Against Children. Worked on that task force with them. We had the art psychologists and everything that were available through grants to help other officers and other departments. It wasn't just any ICAC member, it was everybody across the board. So after the incident that I dealt with, I went to them and said, I need, I need some help. I need, I, this is bugging me. I don't know what to do. This is, this is causing me not to sleep, this, that, the other thing. One of the U.S. Marshals that I worked with on the task force said, hey, you know what? I think maybe we need to make this available to all of you guys, too. Um, and maybe we should try to push the policy says that if something happens like this or something da, 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 that it is mandatory that you go speak to somebody because this is going to happen to people. It's, and your, your mental state is going to change. And I think that they don't do anywhere near enough of that but after that incident we did start that so now that was one of my little you know pinning feathers when I left was that is now available to everybody in the in the department of corrections doesn't matter whether they're probation and parole or corrections officer or the the tech that's sitting there doing all the UAs if you have an issue you go talk to the guy that's with ICAC they bring the, the psychologist in they bring the team members in and they 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 help you through it and that was that was started after um, after my incident. But I after my incident, I went to a uh, a training class. 
gosh, I can't remember the, the gentleman's name. He was a retired highway patrol, um, California highway patrol. He, he's called the guardian of the golden gate. He's the one that talked everybody down from jumping off the bridge and everything. And I can't remember his name now. It was after I went to his classes and actually got to sit through his stuff for that week that I was like, you know, he did the same thing. He's like, this has bothered me so much that I need some help. So he finally got grants and everything and got it all set up. So yeah, that that's more available now, but I'm not sure that's like that in every department. I think everybody has that set up somehow. Um, Chris, do you have something any... like that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty good. You got any other questions? No, I said, do you have something like that in your department? Um, I, I remember reading through the policy that they have, they have a procedure. Um, I just don't know exactly. And I think they have like, I think it's more peer support. I don't think they have like, you know, a doctor or psychologist on staff available to assist with that. Um, That's part though, is that there's a peer support network there. So, um, when we started that, uh, you actually have to sign up for it. You have to sign up and say, hey, if if these people, if anybody else in my office is having a problem, then they have somebody to come talk to. And it's not, it doesn't go through the, um, the command staff. It goes through the officers themselves. So there's less likelihood of feeling ostracized or that there's, you know, they're going to kick you out or take your badge because something's wrong with you or anything like that. It's, it's all a peer driven thing. So we intentionally left them out of it so that that wouldn't happen. And so that's like the very beginning stages of that, Chris, is where you have that policy, but 99% of them don't know how to do it. So that's something you could probably work on too, is, you know, Hey, pull that policy, read through it, and then get a list of other officers that are willing to, you know, lend a shoulder if needed or help guide you toward the, the resources because a lot of the officers are the ones that have the resources because of the units that they work on. Now, I was fortunate to have those resources because of the two things that I did, you know, ICAC and then the sex offender um, part of it was that there was those doctors were available to us anytime. And all they said was, yeah, if you guys need help, let us know. And they're all psychologists and psychotherapists. So they're trained to deal with, you know, issues in the brain. And then with ICAC, it was a different set of people that had different resources. So it was, I was able to guide everybody toward that. And when we left the command staff out of it, they got a little, uh, forgive the, the language, a little butthurt about it <laughs> because we left them out, but we left them out because we didn't want them looking down on anybody or having that officer go, well, if I do this, you know, the command's not going to, they're going to think I'm nuts. Well, no, you know, everybody in the office knows that you're going to need help at one time or another. You're going to need somebody to talk to. So make it available. You make yourself available and then do a list like that where they have, everybody has that list of people that they can contact if something's happening. And it, some of it, like the doctors that we worked with, they said, we don't care if it's professional or personal. If you're having personal problems at home, come talk to me. We'll help you out. We'll help you get through it. You know, that kind of stuff. So 
you'll find that they're very open to that. They're very, um, uh, they're very able to give up their time. They're just more than willing. It's great. Like I know we have a employee assistance program, but it's like kind of like one of those general things that all like big jobs kind of have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had that too. Pay, they, yeah, they like pay an outside company to provide that kind of service. So I'm not exactly sure how um, you know, great it is or how personal it can get, but I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah, it's a good start. It's a good start, no matter what. But uh, hey, Shane, man, we appreciate you definitely uh, sitting down and interviewing with us today. We, we yeah, definitely no do. problem, man. Um, time. A big thing we try to do is uh, interview officers from all over the country so that people, our listeners, our family members can really see that, you know, probation and parole is different every single where you go, everywhere you go, you know? Um, and, you know, I think that's a big, a big attraction that we do have. And I definitely think Alaska people are really gonna enjoy hearing about how things are done in alaska it's a little different so yeah i think they'll uh they'll probably go wow you guys are nuts <laughs> <laughs> you got any questions Brittany? no i think i'm tapped out all right i enjoyed uh, that thank you so, so much all right you guys are welcome thanks for asking thanks for having me and it's uh not often you get asked about your career so and we appreciate really? you. I would think everybody would ask you. You seem to have a wealth of knowledge about this law enforcement stuff. Yeah, that's because I've been doing it for too long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shane. Thank you for uh, being a family member here in the Two Hats podcast. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, uh, we definitely uh, appreciate all your all your support. Thanks for having me on. You guys enjoy your your day off. Thank you so much, Shane. That was an awesome interview. Hearing about the way probation and parole is done in Alaska, it really blew me. I didn't think that it was going to be like that. I've never been to Alaska. Have you ever been to Alaska, Chris? I've never been to Alaska, and I'll be honest with you, I probably have no interest in going to Alaska. (laughs) Well, I want to go to Alaska and see how this is dark all day. I didn't even know that. I feel like I didn't know that. Like It's dark there for many, many hours. But anywho, if you guys want to go ahead and follow Two Heads Podcast on Instagram, please do so. Also, we're available on Spotify, on YouTube, Google Podcasts. And as Chris says, we're available on Apple, too. I don't know if that's true, but we're still trying to figure it out. That is true. That is true. It Someone did tell me. Oh yeah, we are on there. We are, we are on there. How did I not know this? This is crazy. And if you would like to be featured here on the podcast, please send an email to twohatspodcast at gmail.com. We will respond to you within 24 hours. Or just DM us on the, on the Instagram page. I mean, it needs to be a little bit more formal than that. But, you know, we're family over here, so that's fine. Y'all can DM us on Instagram at twohatspodcast. I'm simple. We know. Not just... <laughs> okay, that's okay, it for today's episode. We will holla at y'all in the next one. All right, bye.